We Infuse Podcast, episode number 19. Welcome to the We Infuse Podcast, where we take the confusion out of infusion. And in this week's episode, we're going to be interviewing Brian Nyquist, the executive director of the NICA, who we have had on the show before, but we've got an update because the NICA, the National Infusion Center Association, has come out with some minimum standards for infusion centers. And I got to tell you, I've been in practices all across the U.S. from California to New York, and I have seen it all, everything from a very small space for infusion with an uncomfortable chair and a pole with an IV bag to a nice plush setting in a standalone infusion center with lots of space in between big comfortable chairs and flat screen TVs and Wi-Fi access. I mean, it just spans across the board from experiences that a patient can have in an infusion center. So Brian is going to get into how the NICA went out, went about coming about coming up with minimum standards, what that process looked like and how it's going to change the landscape for infusion centers and for patients. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this, especially if you're one of those people that call us on a weekly basis that want to start an infusion practice. All right, let's jump right in. All right. And like I said, we have a special guest on the show today, Mr. Brian Nyquist with the National Infusion Center Association. And we're actually here at the hotel for the first uh, NICA National Conference, which is really exciting. But Brian is going to share some stuff with us about standards of care, which is something we hear about a lot at, at We Infuse when we talk to people, especially that are starting infusion centers. And they say, what are the typical guidelines? And there's there's just kind of a lot of gray area surrounding that. So, um, Brian, thanks for being on the show and, and kind of clearing the fog on all this. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. And so, Brian, let's just jump right into it. Kind of give give our listeners, I know we've had you on the show before, but a lot has happened since then. So give some of our listeners just a kind of a brief background on NICA and, um, and then we'll go into those standards of care. Yeah, absolutely. So National Infusion Center Association or, or NICA is a 501c3, uh, which basically just means we're tax exempt under that chapter of the tax revenue code. Uh, we're formally organized as a public charity with the mission to improve patient access to provider-administered intravenous and injectable medications through advocacy, education, and resource development. We were formed to support patients' access to a historically underrepresented segment of the infusion delivery channel, the non-hospital, non-oncology, outpatient infusion facility. So the infusion center piece of our name was intended to capture all non-hospital outpatient infusion sites of care model, essentially. Um, so the historically and still today, there are two uh, care models that really dominate the majority of the market share within this, this segment of the delivery channel, the specialty physician office-based infusion suite and the freestanding dedicated infusion center. Um, at NICA, we refer to both of those models and any other non-hospital outpatient infusion facility as quote unquote an infusion center. Um, so when we say, you know, we, we advocate for access to care in infusion centers, that's essentially what we're talking about. Any non-hospital outpatient infusion facility. Um, so from, from an advocacy perspective, we work to identify, address, and overcome access challenges, barriers to care, as well as threats to the sustainability of this care model before any of these factors become disruptive to patients' care so that infusion providers and their staff can do what they got into practice to do, right? Care for patients. 
Uh, from a patient education perspective, we work to empower patients with the educational content they need to take a more active and collaborative role in managing their, their conditions, which is particularly important in the case of autoimmune disease and complex chronic disease, difficult to treat disease in particular. Um, and uh, from a resource development perspective, uh, we develop resources like NICA's Infusion Center Locator to facilitate patient integration into the market by helping connect them with the most conveniently accessible and low-cost care settings within their community. And we also develop resources and tools to help improve infusion providers' capacity to care for patients, whether that's help them understand uh, how to operate more efficiently so they can treat more patients with their current infusion chair infrastructure or how uh, understand the barriers to entering an adjacent state market essentially, right? With Stark Law, Corporate Practice of Medicine, can I use a physician oversight model? Do I, can I use NP oversight model, um, et cetera? So um, that's who we are and that's what we do. Yep. And you guys do a lot. And we know uh, we could talk for hours about all the things you guys do and you going up to Washington and talking to big players on the federal government side or pharmaceutical companies. I mean, I know you guys are really busy and your website is great because when I when I got jumped on board with We Infuse, I want to learn all I could about the infusion center and, and use your website and the resources and the education. So it's great. Um, and what I really am excited to learn more about today is kind of what you just shared the context of before we got started with this whole, you know, standards of care. So can you just give our listeners that context that you gave me and kind of help us understand the need and how you saw the need for standards of care in the infusion center? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Last kind of piece of background. So, so NICA was formed in 2010 and operated remotely, uh, kind of on a part-time basis as needed by, by two of the founders, uh, until I came on board in summer of 2015, June, actually, um, of 2015. Um, I kind of dove right into the deep end, uh, started interfacing with infusion providers, uh, kind of key stakeholders within the industry, started you know, touring different infusion center models uh, across different geographic markets. And I, I started to really notice a significant disparity in infusion injection practice, but also quality of care across care settings. And combined with, you know, the, the volatility of the reimbursement environment and increasingly pressurized atmosphere to shift from, from volume based care to value and, um, all of these different market forces dynamics that are really working against sustainability of the model. I, I was, there was growing concern that a non-stakeholder entity, whether it was, you know, the joint commission or CMS or a, you know, um, ACHC, NQHC, any accreditation bodies or other sort of entities would recognize the fact that this delivery channel is, is, is under-regulated to some extent. And want to come in and essentially force the delivery channel to fit into a box, right? So whether that could manifest in the form of, of a robust uh, accreditation type of a process or just more of a, a standardization of practice or quality of care, et cetera. Um, and that concern ha- had kind of been growing significantly over the years, particularly with this sort of explosion in med spas and these hydration clinics uh, that are establishing venous access and you know potentially mixing, possibly compounding uh, some solutions and administering those to to consumers essentially, typically on a cash basis. Um, so there's growing concern that you know if something if there was an adverse event in one of those facilities or even in any of these infusion clinics, 
um, it could jeopardize the broader delivery channel. So I, a couple months in, I, I started assembling our advisory committee. And so I started sort of reaching out to, to key stakeholders within the infusion delivery channel and brought a bunch of organizations together to, to really build a diverse sample of the delivery channel. And the first goal of that adcom was to establish standards of care, standards of practice for in-office infusion and injection. Um, so we've been working on that since, since the end of 2015, we, we were, we started kind of looking at the top. So what, what would the ceiling look like? What, uh, what would standards of excellence look like, so to speak? Uh, and so that was obviously a, a, a long process, right? And, uh, about mid last year, uh, actually it was, it was early, it was early 2018, I believe, um, New Hampshire, State Board of Pharmacy was was trying to enforce USP 797 uh, pharmacy guidelines in non-pharmacy care settings, right? Going around to infusion facilities and saying, hey, what you're doing, you're reconstituting lyophilized drug is tech, you know, quote unquote compounding subject to USP 797 guidelines. You need to do those preparations in ISO 5 conditions, whether that's a, a pharmacy clean room, a compounding facility, or a, a sterile glove box, essentially. And so... Um, you know, NICA dove in and kind of worked to, to combat that issue and contain it, make sure that it didn't, A, implement in New Hampshire and then potentially metastasize across the country. Uh, so we wound up having to update the state statutory definition of compounding to explicitly exclude these non-compounding preparations, right? Essentially reconstituting lyophilized product to create the FDA-approved drug, right? We're not talking about combining different active ingredients, combining multiple drugs, Right. Not talking about that. Anyhow, sorry, getting away from myself a little bit. So that instance really emphasized the need to expedite and finalize development of these standards. So at that point, I, I shifted focus of the standards conversation to instead of establishing what does that ceiling look like to defining what that floor actually needs to look like. So we, we then shifted those conversations to start identifying what that minimum threshold is for in-office infusion injection practice, but then also from a quality of care perspective. And so happy, happy to announce that we've, we've finally uh, finalized and, and released version one of uh, the first edition of those minimum standards. Um, so they're available on our website. Um, we're going to be you know, announcing it in our meeting this, this weekend. So uh, very, very excited. That is exciting, and that's that's a really neat story. And I and I know from visiting infusion practices all around the U.S., mostly provider offices, but also standalone infusion suites, uh, infusion centers. I have seen the broad spectrum from going into an office where it's a little chair and literally connected to the break room, where mm-hmm. you've got like crumbs of cupcakes and stuff on the break room table because it was somebody's birthday, and then you've got a chair in the corner with a pole that looks like it's 30 years old with an IV bag attached to it. And that's the infusion chair. Yep. I've seen that. And then I've also seen a a beautiful infusion center where you walk in and there's, you know, five feet in between each chair and the chairs are these big, nice, comfortable chairs and there's flat screen TVs. And it feels like you're walking almost into, into a resort or a spa and the people have blankets on and internet access. And it's really like a dream setting for somebody that needs to sit in an infusion chair for, for four or six hours or an hour, however long. So it's amazing that there there hasn't been any standards of care up until this point, and you guys saw the need and jumped on it. And so as you went through that, how did you go through that process of knowing, 
what to do. I mean, it's not like you can say, okay, as a standard of care, they must have this specific leather chair that's so comfortable. I mean, how do you go about making those guidelines? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a difficult process because what we, what we didn't want to do was inadvertently restrict access to care, right? We didn't want to inadvertently restrict good acting infusion facilities and operations ability to treat patients. So it, it was, it was a long process, a uh, lot of conversations, a lot of back and forth, started pulling in uh, some, some outside stakeholders as well to sort of supplement the, the expertise on, uh, on the adcom to kind of answer some of those questions. And um, we, we kind of had to start in, in certain areas, right? Focus on specific areas, right? Okay. Preparation. What is, what does everybody feel needs to be, you know, the minimum in terms of pr- preparing these drugs. And so throughout that conversation, right, we obviously identify a number of different, different aspects of that process uh, that we could and arguably should standardize in some sense. And then, you know, at some point the conversation needs to shift to, okay, is this a minimum threshold or is this more of a, a, a is this a need to have, or is this a nice to have, right? Is this a minimum standard or is this a broader standard of excellence? And so then that was kind of the finalization process within each of those subcategories. And, uh, and then eventually we, you know, finally got to a point to where we, we felt comfortable with what that, that floor essentially looked like. And, uh, we think, we think it's a, uh, it's, we think it's a solid start for defining that minimum threshold. And so we're, we're relying on, you know, the rest of the delivery channel to, to give us some feedback, let us know, you know, are any of these problematic? Are there any other aspects of, of the preparation or administration process, any aspect of quality of care, uh, practice of infusion injection therapy services, uh, any, any aspect of the patient experience that we really need to try and standardize at a minimum level. Uh, we're relying on the stakeholders, right. For that feedback to, to shape subsequent additions of these minimum standards, um, and these, these were built essentially to reduce those disparities in quality of care and practice to make sure that consumers, patients, right, can rely on safe, consistent, high quality infusion and injection preparations, irrespective of what access point they have available within their particular market. Um, so we're, it's in everybody's best interest to, to kind of engage with us and, and work to make sure that that these standards are applicable, that they're appropriate, um, they're not overly burdensome, that we're not inadvertently restricting access to care among certain care models, um, and that right we've got a solid foundation upon which we can really drive and, and define what excellence looks like, right, in terms of outpatient infusion injection therapy. That's so good, and that should be the goal, right? I mean, we're treating patients with life-changing drugs. And- yeah, you're putting drug into their veins. Once that happens, it's, it's impossible to, to undo it. Right. So if there is an adverse event, an adverse reaction, uh, you, you, you can't just undo it. You have to manage that, that reaction essentially. So it's, it's absolutely critical that we, we standardize practice, uh, and quality of care, at least at that minimum threshold. That's so good. Well then let's, so let's jump into what are, what is the list of, of, um, what are the list of rules or guidelines you guys put in place? Yeah. Um, we can do that. It's not, it's not overly robust. Um, so this document as it stands is I think about 12, 12 pages or so. Um, let's see. So, uh, a big piece of it is just 
making sure that facilities have uh, a institutional policy or procedure in it at minimum these areas, right? And just for example, uh, some of those areas are preparation administration of, of IV injectable medications, describing at a minimum, uh, and then we've got six criteria, uh, assessing, documenting education, clinical competency among personnel performing these preparation administration activities. Uh, we've got some sub criteria there as well. Uh, having a policy for patient education uh, and defining uh, what criteria should be included in that education program at a minimum. Um, uh, we've got a piece talking about observation of patients uh, undergoing infusion therapy, uh, clinician to patient ratios, medication storage, handling and disposal, uh, labeling prepared medications. Um, let's see other pieces. Uh, Documentation, right? Documenting when these medications were administered um, in compliance with principles of documentation, um, and then we've got some some criteria as well as to what the those the documentation needs to need to include it at a minimum level. Um, some of the other aspects that that were that were standardizing with this document. Um, let's see, informed consent. We touch on uh, patient assessments vitals that need to be collected uh, as a baseline and then at various time points. Um, again, we have another piece on, on that observation piece. Uh, we, we, re we dive really deep into preparation in this, um, right? As I kind of alluded to the, with the USB 797 piece, uh, to really provide a clear distinction between compounding preparations that that would fall under a state board of pharmacy's jurisdiction and oversight and then preparations that that wouldn't that would fall outside of that jurisdiction okay so um, let's so for so for our listeners that may not have never heard the phrase usp 797 and then there's two different kinds of preparation break that down so that they so there's no confusion over that and why is that such an important area <coughs> yeah so usp is the, the United States Pharmacopoeia Convention. Um, so it's a, a nonprofit organization, essentially, that uh, was formed by pharmacists, uh, and they produce guidance, essentially. Um, one of the chapters, uh, their general chapter 797, uh, refers to compounding sterile products, or CSPs, that they refer to. And so they have a whole chapter incredibly robust chapter, hundreds of pages, all about compounding these sterile products, essentially. Um, and sort of the, the conditions under which those products need to be prepared, et cetera, all these different pieces, you know, storage, all the, all these different pieces. And uh, some state boards of pharmacy have tried to sort of extend the scope of their jurisdiction into these non-clinical settings by claiming that you know, reconstituting drug, and in some cases, right, puncturing a saline bag is is compounding, which is nonsense, absolute nonsense. Um, and so we, I thought it was absolutely important for us to really build in a clear distinction between compounding and non-compounding preparation, essentially, um, because that distinction doesn't exist anywhere. Um, the, the only sort of 
literature that we could reference in, in those battles was FDA's definition of compounding. Um, and there was a clear discrepancy between at the FDA's definition of compounding and what it did not include. And then USP's uh, outdated definition from their old chapter 797 and their definition of compounding, which has been updated of the new chapter that was released June 1st of this year. Um, and that definition does now bring uh, the new definition aligns better with, with the FDA's definition, which is great. And so we, I actually postponed release of these standards so that I could see the new definition and make sure that these standards didn't conflict with that definition and that there was, there was some, some alignment there. Obviously we didn't want to introduce some, some conflict there where there was already conflict. Um, yeah. And so, so that's, what is, and so bringing a standard of care in that area of preparation, what does that mean for the physician's office that has an infusion suite or for the standalone infusion center? Ask that again. Sorry. What is it? I guess, how does that apply to, you know, the physician office that has an infusion suite with a few chairs or a standalone infusion center? Now that you guys are going to push for this standard of care and keep the two types of preparation separate, how does that apply to them? Well, from an infrastructure perspective, um, could potentially negate the need for them to retrofit their facility to incorporate a sterile pharmacy clean room, right, in which they would have to prepare these medications or incorporate a sterile glove box in which they would prepare these medications. Um, there, there are a number of aspects where I think it's beneficial. That's, that's probably the, the main one. Um, other than that, we're seeing a, a shift, potential shift, within the commercial insurance landscape. Um, and I've been hearing reports of commercial insurers reaching out to infusion facilities and inquiring into whether or not they are accredited um, and what accreditation processes are, are out there that could be applicable, et cetera. Uh, one of our adcom organizations actually uh, is having to navigate an accreditation process right now um, to, to just maintain their, their contract with a payer, essentially, just to be able to get reimbursed for drug administered to their beneficiaries. Uh, and so that was another piece, what kind of expediting the finalization and release of these, of these standards. Uh, and then Nike is going to now be working to drive these minimum standards among payers, uh, among CMS as well, and try to incorporate this deeply into the, the regulatory landscape, essentially. Um, we've, we've been working with uh, state boards of nursing uh, in, in a number of states um, I've been corresponding with every state board of nursing um, across the country, as well as that represents U.S. territories. Um, and they've been hungry for something like this because they don't have the teeth to go into these facilities, right? For example, med spas, hydration clinics, et cetera, uh, to really regulate the what's going on there. Um, because in many cases, they're, they're, the individuals preparing and administering these drugs aren't nurses, so boards of state boards of nursing don't have jurisdiction or oversight over, over those individuals and they, they don't have any oversight over the facility level. So, um, so I think that's another benefit. Uh, if, if we're able to get these standards incorporated into that sort of, uh, accreditation quote unquote workflow within uh, commercial insurance companies, uh, I think that would be a huge win. Um, a it's, it's, infinitely less robust and administratively burdensome than the current accreditation processes that are available out there. 
Um, it's, it's more applicable. It was developed by infusion providers and nurses for infusion providers and nurses. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it, it would serve a solid platform, particularly if, if we're able to build out or not if, but when we're able to build out that broader standards of excellence, uh, and potentially build out a standards program through which we can essentially offer some sort of credentialing, uh, of, at the facility level to, you know, provide a mechanism that this facility can demonstrate that, Hey, not only have I met the minimum standards, but I've strived, I've strived to, to exceed those and now achieve these standards of excellence. Um, so I think it makes sense for us to provide a mechanism through which we can distinguish those facilities against others that, that haven't met those, those standards of excellence. Um, and if we're able to get to that point and get insurance companies to accept that, that, that credential essentially, uh, to satisfy their, their perceived requirements for an accreditation, um, that would be an enormous win for the delivery channel. Yeah. You guys are really raising the bar in a good way, but not raising it too high. And you're also ensuring there's consistency and safety across sites across the U S and I, the thing, the thing that comes to my mind is, I mean, I know it's a silly analogy, but you know, if you go to like a famous restaurant chain, you can ensure that you have the same experience in New York as you do in Texas or wherever. And you guys are kind of bringing about uniformity in, in a clinical setting to make sure a patient can have a safe, consistent experience in one site and in one state and in another state and make sure everybody's on the same page when it comes to best practices. And that's so good. I mean, this is done in every single other business industry. line yeah. in the world, yeah. you know? So it's, 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 it's interesting. You know, you think, I mean, it's kind of a light bulb moment that you had to, to bring this about. And it's, it's kind of strange that nobody had a light bulb moment like this before, but you guys seem to be really at the tip of the spear with a lot of new, new things that you're pushing forward to, to just raise the bar for everybody. So So on that piece, I would say, I I was certainly not the first to come up with it. Um, there are at least two other organizations that have, uh, standards, within the infusion delivery channel. Um, but NICA's standards really focused on, on meeting an unmet, an area of unmet need. Um, so for example, infusion nurses society, INS has their standards. Um, and that was really focused on kind of hospital based infusion, sort of oncology focused, um, IGNS, the immunoglobulin nurses society also has standards. Um, that's ex- explicitly and specifically focused on administration of, of IVIG and different immunoglobulin products, sub-Q as well as IV. Um, NICA's standards really focus on non-hospital, non-hazardous drugs in an outpatient setting, um, primarily biologics, uh, which has been sort of an area underrepresented from a standards perspective. So, um, not the first. I certainly can't take credit and, and wouldn't want to take credit for being being the first to identify that need. Um, but we 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 definitely identified an unmet need in that regard, and we worked to to fill that uh, before an outside organization that doesn't understand the the characteristics, complexities, dynamics of the delivery channel, uh, the the challenges in managing you know patients with complex chronic like diseases like autoimmune diseases or difficult to treat potentially life-threatening diseases, et cetera. And so we, we thought it was critically important to come in, fill that need and provide that minimum threshold from a standards perspective 
to make sure that, as to your point, consumers can rely on safe, consistent, high-quality infusion injection preparations, irrespective of what access point is available within their particular market. Yeah, and the patient's probably thinking that's what they get when they go to a physician's office anyway. They're probably thinking somebody is definitely exercising oversight to make sure I'm safe and I'm, I'm going through a yeah, great Yeah, from process. a consumer perspective, right, that's what we're used to in other, other industries. Right. right. But they're not in it, behind the scenes like we are in so many of these offices. And, you know, we see the broad spectrum of differences from, Correct. you know, I mean, there's some doctor's offices, frankly, I, of course I have the freedom to say this, that I wouldn't want to go into after seeing what it looks like in the back of the office and, you know, drugs being prepared next to a sink with a bowl of oatmeal in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I That's, would hope that if I'm going to go in there, I'm going to get better treatment from the nurses and the staff and the doctor. And I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but I think people are so busy and there is an opportunity and there's not a standard of care specifically for the infusion suite with biologics in an outpatient setting. Um, and so it's great that you guys are, are doing this and, you know, ensuring, again, everybody has a consistent, safe process. Yeah. And that was exactly the point, right? Um, so when we started, that was the goal was to reduce those disparities within those office-based infusion and injection clinics, right? Those clinical facilities, uh, with the explosion in the number of these med spas, hydration clinics, uh, the, the focus has kind of shifted a little bit to making sure that consumers can get safe, high quality, consistent care or treatment, so to speak, services really in those settings as well. Um, cause there's huge concern, enormous concern that, you know, it was a matter of time before somebody who didn't really understand what they were doing, uh, you know, administered a, a, a product to, to a patient or a consumer rather, uh, that was contaminated because of poor practices in preparing or storing, et cetera. Um, adverse event, God forbid somebody, somebody died and then, you know, regulators come in and say, whoa, this is a really big issue. State boards of pharmacy come in and say, see, we, you know, we've been trying to tell you guys all these products need to be in, you know, prepared in a compounding facility, et cetera. Um, I mean, I, I'm still hearing stories. Uh, one of our, one of our uh, board members was in a, a med spa the other day and noticed that they were drawing you know, their flush syringes from a saline bag uh, and then turned around and used that saline bag for a medication to, for somebody. Um, they're preparing medications and storing them in some, some cases for a week, uh, before it was administered to a patient, which is terrifying and the worst practice, um, exactly the type of practices that we're trying to eliminate with these minimum standards to make sure that those practices aren't happening, that consumers and patients are not being put at risk, um, when they're, when they're coming in to receive treatment, right? Because consumers don't, don't know anything. Uh, particularly those that are walking into these these infusion clinics, hydration clinics, hydration stations, right, hangover clinics, whatever variety of, of sort of business models that uh, that are kind of popping up. But that's where we're at. And that's we we get calls every week from people starting vitamin infusion clinics or hydration businesses from across the U.S. I mean, multiple calls a week from people who typically don't know what they're doing. They don't know about the business model at all. They don't know about the clinical side. All they've heard is, hey, I have a friend in Nevada who started this hydration business and they are just printing money. Yeah. And we it's cash. Go, we don't have we to do go, repairs. Yeah, like- we want to go set up next to concert venues and just 
give hydration infusions all night long for a hundred bucks a pop, you know, and I, and I'm thinking, yeah. man, you got, and, and they don't know what to do and they don't know where to start. And so it's, again, it's just so great that you guys are doing this to make sure people get safe, consistent care, a great experience when they go to get what they need. So, yeah. And well, I think those, those facilities are providing value, right? They're sure. We just want to make sure that they're providing at least a minimum standard of care and practice to make sure that all consumers are safe. Right. And so good. And so just for the sake of time, I mean, we could go on and of course I always learn a ton from you every time we give me an opportunity to talk. So so there's so many more questions I want to ask, but, but we do, I want to try to make this, um, to where it's not too long. Maybe we might have to do part two after the, the NICA event, but, um, Man, thank you so much for being on the show again. And again, if, if anybody wants to learn more about this, they can go to the website, right? Yeah. Yep. They can go to our website, um, navigate to it. We'll be, we'll be hard launching after NICA 2019. Um, so next week we'll, we'll kind of hard launch, uh, and announce it and kind of you know, where to find it on our website. But folks can go to our website and they can download it right now. Um, start sharing it, start looking over it, work to start to incorporate into their infusion injection workflow. Um, start giving us feedback, right? Where are there areas that we missed? Um, are there areas we need to look at? Did we, did we go a little too heavy in certain areas? Um, all things that we need to know. So this is the first edition. Um, excited to hear how the delivery channel uh, receives it and how, how well, how well it's received, what they think about it. Uh, can't wait to hear that feedback. I think we're going to be getting a lot here this weekend at, at NICA 2019. I'm excited. Definitely. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, this is the, I, I'm most excited about this conference. I mean, we go to conferences every month. And it's turned into the, yeah. a little, something a little bigger than we had, we had anticipated. Yeah. It started as a, just an idea to, you know, try to bring 50 people together to talk about infusion access has evolved into, to what we're looking forward to this weekend, right? We got, well over 500 people showing up to, to talk about challenges, issues, et cetera, what we need to do to preserve, optimize, and expand access to high quality, consistent, safe infusion injection care. Yep. Promises to be a great event. Sold, sold out very quickly. I mean, we were even, um, in the last week leading up to the event, had a lot of people reach out to us at we infuse to say, Hey, we want to come to the NICA conference, you know, do you, do you know if you can get us like a special pass or can you pull any strings? Like, Hey, sorry, we infuse and Nike are two separate organizations. Yeah. I'm going to the event just like you are. And sorry, it's sold out. So, and it's great that you guys are already planning for next year. Yeah. So. Um, so we were fortunate enough to be able to, to keep scaling up. Um, thankfully the venue was able to accommodate us in that regard, but there's, there's obviously a limit, always a limit. And we have, we hit that limit. Um, so we, we weren't able to, to accommodate anybody else. We have literally maxed capacity in every one of the session rooms, um, in the exhibit hall, in the, the Brazos room where we're doing the keynote luncheon. Um, it's, it was, there was overwhelming response. A lot of people apparently were excited to come and, uh, it's turned into kind of the premier networking event for anything medical benefit, drug landscape related. So we got, most of the major manufacturers with an asset in the medical benefit drug landscape that are here, all the major national wholesaler distributors are going to be here. Some of the biggest infusion providers across specialties uh, that represent markets across the country. Uh, we got folks from Puerto Rico that are coming. Uh, it's, it's, it's exciting. So again, give me the opportunity. I'll talk for days. 
<laughs> well, thanks again. And for those of you listening, if you want to connect with Brian Nyquist, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can also check out their website. It's infusioncenter.org, right? Correct. Infusioncenter.org. You can check out all the great resources they have there and find these standards of care as well. So um, much more to go from there. But again, check out their website and be sure to connect with Brian to learn more. And Brian, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me again, Dylan. Always a pleasure. All right. That wraps up my interview with Brian Nyquist. Be sure to check out their website, infusioncenter.org. And if you are in an infusion practice today, be sure to check out our website, check out our blog and request a demo of our software. We will schedule a discovery call with you to learn about your specific workflow and really give uh, kind of a detailed analysis of strengths, weaknesses, opportunity and threat analysis of what your workflow looks like today and how we can possibly improve it. Just go on over to weinfuse.com and request a demo on our website today. Thanks for joining us. This is Dylan McCabe with the We Infuse podcast, and I will catch you in the next episode. <music>